At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every home run, every hit, every inning, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a walk-off grand slam or a base hit to center field. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment, it's never ordinary at Pet365. 21 plus only must be present in Ohio. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Countdown with Keith Olbermann is a production of iHeartRadio. It is early still, but thus far it is the tweet of the year from Ryan Nanny. Quote, GOP, give Liz Truss a shot. I mean, that's it, isn't it? Whatever Kevin McCarthy thinks he is doing, whatever the 20 American Taliban holdouts think they are doing, whomever they all think they are talking to, the Republicans who forced the balloting for Speaker to a second day for the first time in a century have made themselves look like fools of biblical proportions. They have, in fact, supplanted Liz Truss as the most obvious political punchline in the world. And more importantly, 20 of them went to bed last night dreaming of how to make it even worse today. On day one of his presumed speakership, someday, Kevin McCarthy, or somebody, was outmaneuvered, outgeneraled, outdignified by the new leader of the Democrats in the House, Akeem Jeffries. The liberal inclination to avoid the fight, to put out the dumpster fire, to self-importantly get on with it for the good of a nation and then go get a drink, was suppressed and mastered by leader Jeffries. Moderate Republicans and even some Democrats expected that at least a few Democrats would eventually leave the House during the day and by the second vote or at least the third vote, their absences would reduce the margin McCarthy would need to finally get over his hurdle. And Hakeem Jeffries said, stay here and let them burn. As Don Beyer of the Virginia 8th put it, I'll be here voting on every ballot for as long as it takes, and I haven't heard any Dems talk about leaving. We are proud of our unity and determined to fight. Others went more whimsical. Jan Schakowsky of Illinois brought what appeared to be an oil barrel-sized container full of three different flavors of popcorn to share with her Democratic colleagues. 
Her Illinois colleague, Robin Kelly, brought a smaller and thus easier to transport tin of popcorn. Grace Mang of New York and Ted Liu of California had personal serving-sized bags of popcorn. Major league trolling by Democrats who in other years would instead have been hand-wringing and tut-tutting and mulling compromise on behalf of the grateful nation. And a partial score, Hakeem Jeffries won, Speaker of the House, if any, nothing. The GOP self-defenestration yesterday underscores the reality that Trump, with a Republican Senate and a Republican Congress, proved in 2017 and 2018, just as George W. Bush proved, just as George H. W. Bush proved, just as Ronald Reagan proved. The modern GOP can destroy almost everything, but it has no idea how to put together almost anything. It is a party more adept at political machination and manipulation than are the Democrats. But when something actually, finally, actually, actually, actually has to be done, there is no skill, no forethought, no plan. At the stroke of 8 o'clock last night, right-wingers running the gamut from the Trump sycophants who garroted McCarthy to Tucker Carlson to Byron Donalds, the nitwit who changed his vote from for McCarthy to against McCarthy in the third ballot, they all hid behind the only thing they actually did yesterday, come up with a plausible bit of sophistry that sounds good to their own idiot side, which they are now pretending was the idea all along. A little... Disagreement among great leaders is fine and noble because Republicans are the true Democrats and Democrats are the real fascists. And this is how much Democratic Republicans love democracy. We didn't just have one Democratic vote. We had three Democratic votes. And that was our Democratic plan. And you know what our next Democratic plan is, Republicans? Right. If we break the all-time record of 133 ballots for a speaker, that'll mean we're 133 times as Democratic as the Democrats. Democracy, democracy, U.S. USA, USA. They don't have a plan. I mean, Bobert and Gates and Bob Good and Chip Roy and Scott Perry and the others had a scheme. The 19 of them, the 19, what would you call them? The anti-McCarthyism caucus, the chaos caucus. The Insurrection Caucus? No, no, no. That last one they already used two years ago Friday. They would create chaos and havoc and drama and earn themselves what they really wanted from serving in the House, what they really understood about serving in the House, serving in the government, serving the people of this country. A bunch of sound bites. A bunch of sound bites they personally can use in fundraising and election campaigns. That is what government means to them. I mean, Congressman-elect Don Bacon called them the Taliban 20 and the Taliban caucus, and Matt Gates took that as a compliment. Literally took it as a compliment. Because who will or will not return Matt Gates to the House in two years if he's not in prison? The Florida equivalent of the Taliban. Anything beyond cool sound bites will be accidental. I mean, I suppose there is some magical thinking that if they could talk this idiot Donalds out of the McCarthy camp and go from 19 votes against him to 20, they might be able to start a run on the bank thing on ballot number, I don't know, 27 or something. 
That, presumably, is when McCarthy's biggest backers or his most terrified backers, like Marjorie Trailer Park Green, start looking for an alternative who does not even have to be part of the Taliban. And that, of course, is how every presidential favorite who ever walked into a Democratic or Republican convention and wound up not getting it, wound up not getting it. It was 99 years ago this summer that the Democrats headed to Madison Square Garden with two outstanding presidential candidates, Woodrow Wilson's son-in-law, William McAdoo, and New York Governor Al Smith. And they left it 103 presidential nomination ballots later with the ultimate compromise candidate of all ultimate compromise candidates, John Davis, unknown former ambassador to England. And John Davis in the election, wound up getting 29% of the popular vote and losing nearly 2-1 to to Calvin Coolidge, who didn't even campaign. And at the end of his life, John Davis was one of the lawyers who defended the segregationists in the suite of Supreme Court cases now collectively known as Brown v. Board of Education. Nice work, John. It is terrifying to say this, but Kevin McCarthy might just be the most qualified candidate for speaker that the Republicans have. I mean, on a scale of one to a hundred, he's a five or a six or 6.2 on a good day. But that really might be the best they have. And obviously the truth about that is if you cause terrified Republican lemmings to abandon Kevin McCarthy, they will inevitably wind up with somebody less capable of making the house function they will find their own john davis hell knowing these morons they might even find the john davis and john davis has been dead since 1955 and an updated partial score akeem jeffries two speaker of the house if any nothing Like all insurrectionists, the Taliban 20 are the proverbial dogs chasing the car. Their skill, their joy, is that chase. What to do if they catch the car is an entirely different thing. The Jiminy Glick of Fox News, Carlson, who has as much claim to being the intellectual leader of the Republican Taliban as any of the other morons, demanded two things last night, that McCarthy release all the January 6th video and files online, implying that McCarthy is part of some cover-up of the supposed truth about January 6th, which to them is, as any good Republican knows, that the real victim that day was Donald Trump. Carlson also demanded that McCarthy create a new committee under Kentucky fascist Thomas Massey to investigate CIA and FBI interference in domestic politics. Translation, Twitter Gazi with star hearing witnesses Matt Taibbi and Elon Musk. Whatever. The big, giant part of reality that Gates and Good and Tucker Carlson and the others have not seen, do not see, and will never see is the same big giant part of reality that Trump has never seen and that, frankly, a lot of us, myself included, a lot of us often forget to focus on. Most of America, most of America's voters spend less time analyzing the events of American politics than I have just reading this commentary right now, and that you have 
just listening to this commentary right now. America is the way it is today because we have become the society that only reads the headlines. And in this case, the headlines are Republicans head back to House for second day of laugh out loud disarray. Democrats restock their supply of popcorn. And one more look at the scoreboard. Akeem Jeffries, three Speaker of the House, if any, nothing. Still ahead, oh my God, the Republican Taliban, the 20 Liz Trusses, somehow actually managed to overshadow even poor George Santos walking sadly through the halls of Congress, his goofball backpack making him look like a lost transfer student. Worst persons ahead. And next, the tragedy of Damar Hamlin of the Buffalo Bills you know about. But in the grief and shock, the history of similar nightmares in the National Football League and in other sports seems to have been entirely and perhaps deliberately forgotten. And that history is being exploited by the anti-vaxxers. And I don't forget. And more important still in the grief and shock, the National Football League's willingness to throw its own broadcasters like Joe Buck and its networks like ESPN under the bus to gaslight you comes to the fore yet again. The NFL once lying that they never tried to play the Sunday after 9-11. Now they are lying that they never intended to resume Monday night's game after Hamlin was stricken. The NFL is lying, and I will call them out on it. And that is next. This is Countdown. At Bed 365 we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every home run, every hit, every inning, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. See for yourself when you sign up today and get $150 in bonus bets when you bet just $5. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment, it's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only must be present in Ohio. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for up to half the cost. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Savings based on cost of Consumer Cellular single line 1, 5, and 10 gig data plans with unlimited talk and text compared to lowest cost single line postpaid unlimited talk text and data plans offered by T-Mobile and Verizon January 2024. Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S. That's over 15 million people by the end of this year, equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. 
Join now and save up to 25% your first year at lifelock.com slash news. That's lifelock.com slash news to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here. This is Countdown with Keith Olbermann. Apart from the human tragedy of DeMar Hamlin of the Buffalo Bills and his cardiac arrest and his intubation, the inevitable infuriating side stories are multiplying, and first among them, the National Football League is gaslighting you. After Hamlin collapsed Monday night and was given CPR on the field and taken off by ambulance and play was stopped and the Buffalo Bills and the Cincinnati players went to their locker rooms. The game was, quote, temporarily suspended. It was not postponed. It was not canceled. And that was made clear by the play-by-play man for ESPN, Joe Buck, and the studio host, Susie Culber, on the ESPN broadcast. And ESPN even made a graphic, temporarily suspended. And then the NFL said it would give the teams a five-minute warning to get the players ready to resume the first quarter And ESPN put that on its graphic. And in those five minutes, the world came down on the NFL for its callousness and its hesitation to call the game off while a young and popular Bills player was fighting for his life and his teammates and his rivals and the broadcasters and the viewers tried to fight through the trauma of what they had all been witness to either in person or via TV. Within hours of this, The National Football League was claiming none of that had happened. The league's executive vice president of football operations, a former player named Troy Vincent, insisted on a conference call, quote, frankly, it never crossed our mind to talk about warming up to resume play. That's ridiculous. That's insensitive. And that's not a place that we should ever be in. How do you resume playing when such a traumatic event occurs in front of you in real time? And that's the way we were thinking about it, the commissioner and I. Bullcrap. I worked at ESPN for a total of 10 years. I worked on NBC's football coverage for three years. I co-hosted the Super Bowl pregame show for NBC. I hosted the Internet Super Bowl halftime show for Fox. I worked for two years at Fox with Joe Buck. I worked for seven years at ESPN with Susie Kalber. I worked with all the ESPN game producers and all the studio producers and all the executives. And I can tell you without fear of contradiction, I have had many problems with all of the people I have just mentioned, from Joe to Susie to the executives. But if Joe Buck and Susie Kalber reported that the players were going to be given some time to compose themselves and then a five-minute warm-up because the game was to resume, Joe and Susie had been told that by the bosses at the highest level of their organization, and those bosses had been told that directly by the National Football League. Yesterday, Joe Buck said he was quoting ESPN's own rules expert, John Perry, who'd been in direct contact with the NFL office in New York. And ESPN issued a carefully phrased but strong self-defense, quoting it. 
There was constant communication in real time between ESPN and league and game officials. As a result of that, we reported what we were told in the moment and immediately updated fans as new information was learned. This was an unprecedented, rapidly evolving circumstance. All night long, we refrained from speculation. They did not say this. I will say it again. The National Football League is lying. Of course it is. It is expert at lying. And of course the NFL is trying to revise the history of DeMar Hamlin and what it wanted to do that night because it made the wrong call. And because of the additional reporting that the players and the coaches made it clear that they were not going to resume the game no matter what the NFL said and no matter what news did or did not come from DeMar Hamlin's bedside. And those are the only reasons the game was finally postponed Monday night. The NFL would have played. The National Football League has made callous mistakes before, like how it wanted to proceed after DeMar Hamlin's cardiac arrest. It will make them again. And this is also not the first time it has flat out lied to the public about what it did or did not do or when it was or was not callous. Right after 9-11, then NFL Commissioner Paul Tagliabue made a huge chest-thumping deal over canceling the games scheduled for Sunday, September 16th and Monday, September 17th. There were pious comments about the grieving nation and the wounds and inappropriate this and respectful that, when in fact, on a conference call with the FAA and security officials and the heads of the major airlines on either the Thursday or Friday after the attacks, the league said it intended to play those games as scheduled on the 16th and 17th. And the authorities replied that that was nice. But there could be no guarantee that NFL teams or officials or broadcast crews or fans would be able to fly from city to city just to play or watch football games and that there would be no priority given to those flights, even if air travel suspended after the attacks was largely up and running by Saturday the 15th. The NFL complained. It got the same answer. And so Paul Tagliabue went public with... A loud, unseemly, self-congratulatory cancellation announcement. And unthinking reporters applauded without once considering the reality of the logistics that had given the NFL no choice but to cancel and then boast as if it had been its own idea. Much earlier, on the morning of Monday, November 27, 1978, Mayor George Moscone and Supervisor Harvey Milk were assassinated by an ex-city councilman in San Francisco's City Hall. The San Francisco 49ers were to host the Pittsburgh Steelers literally just hours later in the Monday night football game at Candlestick Park. Mayor Moscone had been an arch advocate for the 49ers and for the importance of sports in his community. And despite calls to cancel or, or just postpone the game for a day, the NFL never seriously considered doing that. It was the height of insensitivity and disrespect. Of course it was. That is NFL policy. On November 24, 1963, the National Football League played anyway two days after the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. The American Football League canceled its entire schedule. I have mentioned it here before that the then commissioner of the NFL, Pete Rozelle, openly regretted that decision for the rest of his life. And he also understood firsthand just how unpopular it was. 
I've never found a second source for this report, but I can't imagine my source made it up or got it wrong. He was Bill McPhail, and he was the president of CBS Sports, which in 1963 carried NFL games exclusively. It did not televise any games that horrible Sunday. Bill McPhail was also Pete Rozelle's close friend, and the two of them pretty much designed the way they televise NFL games then and now, which built pro football in this country. Bill McPhail would become the vice president of the new cable news network, CNN, in 1980. He was the vice president in charge of sports. He designed CNN's original robust sports department and started the TV careers of people like Dan Patrick and Gary Miller and me. And one day, Bill told me that with all the CBS NFL telecasts canceled on Sunday, November 24th, 1963, he had nothing to do. So he joined his friend Pete Rozelle, the NFL commissioner, at Yankee Stadium to watch the Giants play the St. Louis Cardinals. It would be within weeks that Roselle would say he was mistaken to not cancel that schedule, and 20 years he was still telling it to people like me and calling it the greatest mistake of his life. But Pete Roselle was right about one thing. Despite the assassination, despite the grief, despite the fact that Lee Harvey Oswald was shot on live national television 40 minutes before the NFL kicked off its games that day, attendance for the games was normal, down maybe 1,000 per game. There were 68,000 fans at Yankee Stadium for the Cardinals-Giants game. But Bill McPhail told me that during halftime, one of them, a man, appeared at their seats, asked, are you Pete Rozelle? Are you the reason we're here today? And when Rozelle confirmed it, the man punched Rozelle in the face, said nothing, and walked away. Bill told me he moved to follow the man, to apprehend him, but Roselle stopped him. Don't. I know how he feels. The NFL made a mistake in 1963. It made a mistake in 1978. It made a mistake in 2001. It made a mistake Monday night. And if somebody had just said, yes, we originally thought we might be able to resume the game. We did not know how serious his condition was. We were terribly mistaken. We can only say that like everybody else who saw what happened, we were shocked and terrified. And when you are traumatized, not only do you often make mistakes, but the one mistake you are most likely to make is to try to pretend everything is normal and carry on as if everything is normal. We did that. We are sorry. If the NFL had just said that, I could not imagine anybody complaining about it. But do not gaslight people. Do not lie to people. Do not imply your broadcast partners whose content you watch like censors misled the nation. You were already guilty of being callous. Do not add dishonesty to your crimes. There is something else about the DeMar Hamlin tragedy that bears repeating, and this has nothing to do with the National Football League's. Bluntly, there is still a crazy component in our society that blames, and until further notice, will blame the death or illness of anyone at any time on COVID vaccinations. These creatures appeared on Twitter. Kevin Sorbo, Lenny Dykstra, Charlie Kirk, Rogan O'Handley, Grant Stinkfield. There was another one who actually declared that Hamlin was dead because of COVID vaccines. They also all appeared in the right-wing echo chamber. 
because there is no tragedy too traumatic for them to try to exploit to serve their paranoid, uninformed, dangerous, indefensible conspiracy theories. And they jumped on the Damar Hamlin story as if it proved those conspiracies because they have no souls, no consciences, and ironically, no hearts. And their basic, stupid, simplistic argument is that no National Football League player had ever collapsed that way before COVID vaccines. Therefore, COVID vaccines caused it. Therefore, COVID vaccines are evil. Therefore, vote Republican. It is a sick and twisted mentality. And how we will purge it from this nation, I do not know. Maybe more importantly, that spits on the graves of the players in the National Football League and in other sports who have died of heart failure, heart attacks, other heart disease on fields and on courts and in arenas since sports began. I thought immediately of Hank Gathers, the Loyola Marymount basketball star who died in the middle of a playoff game in 1990, died on the court in front of his home fans. And I remember the unspeakable sadness and the gloom I felt while reporting from his campus that night. And I think of J.V. Kane, the seventh pick in the 1974 football draft and a star tight end of the St. Louis Cardinals, making his way back from a serious tendon injury. He collapsed during a no-contact practice on July 22, 1979, died within two hours and was later found to have had a rare congenital heart problem that no one could have discovered until the autopsy. And most of all, I am thinking of, and especially I am enraged on behalf of, the memory of a player named Chuck Hughes. With less than two minutes to go in the Chicago Bears-Detroit Lions game at Tiger Stadium in Detroit on October 24, 1971, Chuck Hughes caught a 32-yard pass from the Detroit quarterback Greg Landry. He was tackled virtually simultaneously from different directions by two Chicago defenders, Bob Jeter and Gary Lyle. Three plays later, as he made his way back to the Lions huddle, Chuck Hughes dropped to the turf, clutching his chest. He was dead within minutes. His autopsy showed profound, undiagnosed arteriosclerosis, hardening of the arteries. Professionals said the violent double tackle could have triggered the coronary thrombosis and then the heart attack that killed him on the field, but it was basically irrelevant. One of his coronary arteries had been 75% blocked. The football world mourned that year, and if there were scumbags like Kevin Sorbo and Lenny Dykstra and Charlie Kirk and Rogan O'Handley and Grant Stinkfield around, hoping to tread on the grave of Chuck Hughes to try to sell whatever conspiracy theories they were pushing in 1971, they had the presence of mind to keep their goddamned mouths shut. Or we had the presence of mind to never to listen to them. In denying its obvious original intent to restart that game, the National Football League has provided enough insensitivity and dishonesty and shame to make this particular nightmare somehow worse. We do not need amateurs like these anti-vax opportunistic worms to pile on to that.
Still ahead, so a local TV news reporter in New York put me on the air in one of his reports in 1973, and a decade later, he was sitting next to me on the anchor desk at CNN, and he introduced himself, and I said, we've met before. And he said, oh? The story of baseball cards and television and how quickly 10 years can pass coming up. First, the daily roundup of the miscreants, morons, and Dunning-Kruger effect specimens who constitute today's worst persons in the world. The bronze Michael Flynn. I don't know if he fought one too many battles without his helmet on or if he's getting paid to say this stuff, but for eight years, he's been saying this stuff. Quote, Russia has achieved all of their objectives in Ukraine, and they're now exposing bio labs that have been in there sponsored by the U.S. The guy that just showed up to speak to our Congress in a sweatsuit should have been thrown out, unquote. I don't know. I think it reads better in the original Russian. When are we going to do something about this guy, Flynn? I don't know if he's disloyal or mentally discombobulated, but he should be under lock and key. The runner-up, Trump. Speaking of under lock and key, this is why you do not make deals with a psychopath. You may recall that Kevin McCarthy dissolved whatever remaining glue adhered congressional Republicans not only to America but to each other the day after the coup when he later went to Mar-a-Lago to kiss Trump's ring. A smarter, more patriotic man would have used the post-January 6th momentum that was the feeling of horror and shame two years ago this month and put it into a fire hose and then pointed the fire hose at Trump. Instead, McCarthy made a deal and reached by NBC last night about whether or not he was sticking by that deal, which was his endorsement of McCarthy to become Speaker of the House. Donald Trump said, quote, we'll see what happens. We'll see how it all works out. The reporter says he asked the question again and Trump repeated, we will see what happens and hung up. Nicely played, Kevin. But our winner, George Santos. He issued a press release yesterday saying he had been sworn in as congressman from New York. But in fact, he's still only congressman-elect because no speaker means no swearing in. The liar from Long Island cut a very sad figure indeed in the House yesterday. Nobody talking to him, nobody feeding him popcorn. He was left alone to yawn without covering his mouth. And worst of all, when he went to his new office, he found it was surrounded by... Reporters? There are reporters covering Congress, and they can just stand there and wait for me? I didn't see that in the prospectus. So, Santos promptly turned around and walked away from the reporters, who trailed him, peppered him with questions, and he said nothing for like a minute. The audio may be better without the video. He's wearing a backpack like he might have worn at Horace Mann Prep School if he'd actually gone there and not just lied about it. So he looks like Charlie Brown on a really, really bad day. And the baseline noise here, the shuffling feet, that to me is the chef's kiss. Oh, George. Do you feel like you're qualified to serve in this Congress right now? How do you hope your constituents can trust you, even though that you've misrepresented your biography to them? What's your response to calls for a House ethics investigation by Nicola Do you have any statements about your campaign and how you hope to govern? Do you hope to carry out your full term?
365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every home run, every hit, every inning, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. See for yourself when you sign up today and get $150 in bonus bets when you bet just $5. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment, it's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only must be present in Ohio. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. Getting ready to take on spring? Make your first move with the reliable performance and power of steel battery tools. From hedge trimmers and mowers to string trimmers and more, right now you can save $50 on select battery tool sets. Real steel. Offer valid on select AK system sets through June 16, 2024. See participating retailer for details. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. To the number one story on the countdown and my favorite topic, me and things I promised not to tell. I believe it was this time of year, early winter, 39 years ago, that the CBS television station here in New York, Channel 2, dismissed a news reporter named Charles Crawford. I was reminded of him the other day because he bridges two stages of my life that from this advanced age feel like two separate lives. Until I was about 15 and went out on my first date, I spent all of my time doing about four things and four things only. Going to school, going to baseball games, collecting sports memorabilia, and trying to figure out how I was going to be a sportscaster or sports writer when I grew up. Incidentally, I think I'm now up to doing about six things and six things only. Anyway, in 1971, the fact that there were adults who collected baseball cards and spent literally hundreds of dollars on some of them was sprung on an unsuspecting America. The first big card convention, a gussied-up flea market in a Detroit-area hotel over a three-day weekend, to which some people traveled from other states, was so completely unbelievable that CBS News sent a crew and a reporter to cover it. The story closed out in an edition of the CBS Evening News one night, and I think it so shocked anchorman Walter Cronkite that he said, gosh, or something, before recovering to sign off. That's the way it is, Monday, August 23rd, 1971. Walter Cronkite, CBS News. The couple of thousand of us who constituted the entirety of the known baseball card hobby, all let out a squeal of delight in front of our black-and-white TVs, and the mainstreaming of baseball cards began. The most amazing part of it was, it was almost all adults. There was a kid my age in Indianapolis named Elliot Dock, who had a fabulous collection. There was another one near Philly named Robert Lifson, And he and I have been friends 50 years now, and he was over at the apartment in December talking cards. There were some other older teenagers, 17, 18, 19, but other than that, it was all adults. 
adults who had either secretly never stopped collecting baseball cards or had resumed collecting them and who could enjoy everything from a newly issued Reggie Jackson card to a newly discovered example from the set issued by Kalamazoo Bats Cigarettes in 1888. In 1972, the first such card show in the metropolitan New York area was held, and at the age of 13, I went with my parents and sister in tow, and I had, for me anyway, a transcendent experience, and they did not, unless you consider a summer weekend in a hotel in Lake Ronkonkoma, New York, transcendent. At least there was a pool, and it didn't rain. Anyway, the next year, in partnership with some others, one of the really good people in the hobby, an adult named Mike Arenstein, also still a friend of mine 50 years later, the man who basically invented everything from plastic sheets to keep your cards in, to reprints of old cards, to cards of minor league players, he staged the first show in New York City in a union hall all the way downtown, bang, on Astor Place over the Memorial Day weekend. He was told he was going to lose his shirt on this. In fact, by early Friday evening, like two hours after the thing opened, the crowd was so large and dense, I could not see from my chair behind the table I had bought, from which I was selling my duplicates, to the table directly across the aisle from me, which was no more than 20 feet away. It was such a success, Mike hurriedly booked the hall for a second show for Thanksgiving. Well, by now, 1973, if you put a bunch of these crazy adults paying good money to buy old baseball cards, $25 for a 1952 Topps Mickey Mantle? Are these people escapees from a psychiatric facility? Well, if you did that, some reporter was going to show up and cover the lunacy. This was especially true of local television news, especially on a weekend where a story that was not exactly like every other story that you could shoot before noon, develop the film, and get it on the air at 6 p.m., that was a gift from the gods. Which is how I came to see a little commotion at the front door of that 1973 Memorial Day weekend card show and see, emerging from the commotion, a man carrying a small TV camera, followed by another man carrying a big TV boom microphone, followed by another man who was Charles Crawford, the reporter from Channel 2 News. I knew it was him because I knew everybody on TV in New York in 1973 by sight, because I watched as much TV news as I could because, bluntly, I was studying it. My dad was at my table with me, and while I hoped that Mr. Crawford would come over and interview me among the hundreds of collectors and dealers there, my dad was a little less reliant on happenstance and accident and was more hands-on. Be right back, he said. And the next thing I knew, he was buttonholing Charles Crawford and gesturing back towards me. And the next thing I knew after that, Charles Crawford was standing in front of my table asking me a few questions, but mostly asking me to show his cameraman how I was able to use my, quote, filing system so sophisticated it allows him to find any card a collector might want in seconds. That was it. My television debut. No soundbite. Not even my name, just my hands, pulling out a drawer from a small filing cabinet and deftly locating a 1968 Rico Petroselli card, or whatever it was. There was also about three seconds of me looking straight towards the camera, just as Charles Crawford told me to, my eyes a mixture of abject fear and an inscrutable scheming quality which quite bluntly at its essence amounted to my internal dialogue about how I could get Charles Crawford to surrender his camera crew and his job so I could go leave the card show and work for Channel 2 News that night.
I have gone into excruciating detail about my career timeline, and for purposes of the Charles Crawford story, I will only hit the bullet points. This is the year 1973. By 1975, I was on the air at the professional commercial radio station owned by Cornell students. In 1978, I was an intern at the news assignment desk and for the sportscaster at another New York TV station, Channel 5. In 1979, I got my first full-time job at UPI's radio network. In 1981, I got my first TV gig as a substitute sports reporter for CNN in New York. In 1982, I got that job full-time. And now back to 1983, when they started letting me anchor for the first time. A daily four-minute sportscast every night at 545 in the middle of the newscast that was co-anchored by CNN's vice president and New York bureau chief, Mary Alice Williams. One day, now at the age of nearly 25, a cynical veteran of 28 months in television, I came down from our offices on the 25th floor to our studio in the lobby of One World Trade Center to do my sportscast. But apparently, Mary Alice Williams was off that day because when I got to the anchor desk at 5.42 or so, the anchor at the desk in her place was... Charles Crawford. The same Charles Crawford. The Charles Crawford who had put me on TV a decade before from the 1973 card show at the District 65 Union Hall on Astor Place. A co-anchor in Atlanta teased my sportscast, and when we went to the commercial break, Charles Crawford introduced himself to me, and I said, we've met. And he said, oh, how, when? And I said, well, I'll tell you now so you can recover during the sportscast. And as I quickly recounted it and quoted his narration word for word, this 14-year-old has a filing system so sophisticated it allows him to find any card a collector might want in seconds. I told him that, and his face got whiter and whiter and whiter, and he told me not to worry if he got up and left while I was doing the sportscast because he needed to walk around for a bit and get some air. To his credit, when we came back from my report, he introduced me as his old friend. When he came back and said, don't misunderstand me, I'm not offended or anything, I'm glad you made it, but just remember this will happen to you someday too, I mean I'm only 47. And I laughed and I told him it already had happened to me, that I had gone back to my college radio station a year after I had graduated, and a kid walked up to me and said he was just starting to train as a sportscaster there, and he had been listening to me since he was 11 years old. And I went whiter than Charles Crawford did on that set. And I said, how in the hell does that work? I'm only 21. I only started here five years ago. And he explained he was still attending Ithaca High School at the moment, and he was only 16. And I told Charles Crawford that my response was not like his, to go for a walk. I said, I went out and went for a drink. And Charles said, that's also my plan as soon as the newscast is over. I'll buy you one. He couldn't have been nicer. And just as I was leaving CNN the next spring, they were hiring him full-time, and he eventually became CNN's chief science correspondent. He was still with them in the late 90s, and he passed away in 2016 at the age of 81. I remember him for the 1973 card show, of course, but also for that drink at the bar that was literally 100 yards from CNN New York front door. He had all kinds of advice about dealing with TV executives. These people are as dangerous as anything in this world... And I was a pilot instructor in the Air Force for eight years.
I've done all the damage I can do here. Thank you for listening. If you're not following or subscribing to the podcast, please do so. Here are the credits. Most of the music, including our theme from Beethoven's Ninth, was arranged, produced, and performed by Brian Ray and John Philip Chanel. They are the Countdown Musical Directors. All orchestration and keyboards by John Philip Chanel. Guitars, bass, and drums by Brian Ray. Produced by TKO Brothers. Other Beethoven selections have been arranged and performed by No Horns Allowed. The sports music is the Olbermann theme from ESPN2, and it was written by Mitch Warren Davis, courtesy of ESPN Inc. Musical comments by Nancy Faust, the best baseball stadium organist ever. Our announcer today was Tony Kornheiser. Everything else was pretty much my fault. So that's Countdown for this, the 729th day since Donald Trump's first attempted coup against the democratically elected government of the United States. Arrest him now while we still can. A new edition tomorrow. Until then, I'm Keith Olbermann. Good morning, good afternoon, good night, and good luck. Countdown with Keith Olbermann is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every home run, every hit, every inning, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. See for yourself when you sign up today and get $150 in bonus bets when you bet just $5. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment, it's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only must be present in Ohio. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. Dealing with pests can be a pain, but relax, Terminix can help. Because when pests show up, so does Terminix. With over 95 years of experience, they have what it takes to take on any pest problem fast. If your home or business has pests, don't stress it. Terminix it. Visit Terminix.com to book your appointment online today. That's T-E-R-M-I-N-I-X.com. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts.